Today we'll be in John chapter 13, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Last week we embarked on to the beginning of that chapter, and uh, if you were here, uh, you remember chapter 13 is, is a big transition point for the Gospel of John. We've entered new territory, um, which I'll talk about uh, in, a, in a bit here. But now, we'll be looking at verses 18 to 30 today. Uh, we come to uh, Jesus' revelation of his betrayer. There is a traitor among, amongst them, a traitor in their midst, um, and Jesus is about to announce that traitor. Now, history is full of famous traitors. There are 300 vastly outnumbered Spartans that were able to hold a, a pass in Thermopylae uh, against a, a Persian army that vastly outnumbered them. Uh, Until a traitor showed the Persians a different route, and they were able to outflank those 300 Spartans and defeat them. Uh, Today, it's remembered as one of the most famous last stands in history, but that was all at the hands of a traitor. The British commemorate a traitor every year. You celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. You celebrate the capture of Guy Fawkes and the foiling of the gunpowder plot, right? The, the plot to blow up Parliament. I honestly had never heard of Guy Fawkes until we moved here. Uh, there is an American counterpart, don't know if you're aware of, Benedict Arnold. But Benedict Arnold was a general in the Continental Army, um, fighting against the British in the American Revolution. Benedict Arnold was um, uh, disillusioned. He was passed over for several promotions, and so he made a deal that he was going to surrender fortifications at West Point to the British uh, until a British major, John Andre, was captured carrying documents that incriminated Benedict Arnold. So his plot was exposed and he defected to the British and then led armies against his fellow countrymen. And after that, Benedict Arnold was synonymous with treason. His name was used just in reference to treason in the States, Benedict Arnold. You can go to the Bible, and it is chock full of traitors. You have Absalom, David's son. You have Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor. Sheba led a revolt of the northern tribes. Jeroboam revolted against Solomon, which led to the division of the kingdom. Basha murdered Jeroboam's son and ruled in his place. And then Zimri murdered Basha's son, and ruled in his place. And there's even an assassination plot discovered by Mordecai uh, against King Ahasuerus during the days of Esther, right? The number of famous historic traitors in history, biblical history, has led to the creation of fictional ones in Hollywood, hasn't it? And I think one of the most famous movie traitors of all time is a young Jedi knight named Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> who betrayed the Jedi Council, joined the dark side, and became the iconic movie villain, Darth Vader. He is a traitor, right? But everybody knows Darth Vader. However, with all the famous biblical, historical, and fictional traitors that exist, there is one historical traitor that's the most notorious of all of human history, and that is Judas Iscariot. Most people today would be able to tell you who Judas Iscariot was and 
who he betrayed. Even today, Ethan will tell you, there is a memorial, strangely enough, (laughs) to Judas Iscariot that he illegally stumbled upon. Let him tell you about that story. (laughs) If you want to hear more about that story, by the way, next week, when we are not meeting here, and we're meeting where? King Coyd, good. I will not be continuing in the study of John. You will be treated to a walk through the Bible and the Holy Land slideshow with Ethan. So he has learned a lot and experienced a lot, and I thought it'd be nice, a sweet thing to take a break, right? And let's see what the Lord taught him during that time. And so if you're interested in the Holy Land and you want to know kind of what's going on there and what it all was about, Ethan's going to share uh, what he learned with you. So don't miss next week just because we're in a different campus. You'll, you'll miss something very special. And maybe you'll learn about Judas Iscariot's tomb. I don't know. <laughs> but it's clear by the writers of the New Testament how the early church felt about Judas. When you uh, read the list of the apostles in the New Testament, who is last every, in every list? Judas. He's mentioned very last. Whenever the gospel writers mention Judas, he's mentioned as the betrayer or the, the, the one who was the traitor amongst them. Now, interestingly, nothing, or not nothing, but little is known about Judas. We don't know where he came from. His father, father's name was Simon Iscariot. That surname is derived from two Hebrew words that mean man of Kiriath. So it could be that he was a descendant or came from one of two Kiriath villages mentioned in the, in the Bible. One's in Moab, one's in Judea, so probably the one in Judea. But we don't know when or where he first met Jesus. We don't have recording of the Lord's recruitment of Judas, right? Where he said, oh, put down your net and follow me, Judas, right? We don't, we don't have that account. We only have the record of when Jesus first called him and the other 11 his apostles. And that's in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. I have it here for you. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now, in our passage today, this, this account is meant to expose Judas, Judas as the betrayer to Jesus' disciples, but it comes as no surprise to us, the audience, the readers. If you are reading John's gospel, uh, John has already mentioned two other times that Judas is, is the one that who would betray Jesus. Back in chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them and said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. And then later, John mentioned it in chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Now, I want you to note that in both of those accounts, it was not Jesus that said he was the betrayer. Did you note that? It's John's particular note. John is telling you, the reader, that he was the one that would be betrayed. But Jesus hasn't said that. He's just said, one of you is a devil. 
In our account today, Jesus will actually reveal Judas to be the one that is the betrayer. The disciples at this point are clueless. They trusted Judas with the money box. They've not suspected him of treachery at all. And the setting for this unmasking is the same setting that we had last week, and it will be the same setting for the, next, for the five chapters. These five chapters are, are all sort of one setting, one, um, one area of, of teaching that Jesus is going to spend this time with his disciples to prepare them for his absence. Now, if you remember, it's the feast of the Passover, right? And Jesus had just finished sharing his last meal with his disciples, And we didn't cover the specifics of where it took place last week, so I'm just going to take a minute to do that now in terms of the the location for the last meal and the teaching that he's going to give his disciples. It's all going to be in this upper guest room. And Luke chapter 22 tells us about it. So take a moment just to flip back to Luke chapter 22, and we'll look at verses 7 to 13 so we really uh, get a picture as to where we're going to be for the next five chapters. Luke chapter 22. Verses 7 to 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So that's where we are. And last week, the emphasis was upon Jesus' example as he washed the feet of his disciples. Um, If you look back to chapter 13 in our passage, verse 15 Jesus said, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. We focus on the example that if we say we follow the Lord, we should follow his example. But even in giving us that example, Jesus at this point had already alluded to the fact that there was somebody in their midst who didn't belong. Remember in washing their feet, Peter says, yeah, wash, wash everything, right? Wash my head, wash my feet, wash, wash it all. And Jesus said, I don't need to wash all of you. You're you're, you're clean already. But then he said, what? Not all of you. Not all of you are clean. And that was in verse 11. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. John gives us a note that that was in reference to Judas. So the stage now is set to unmask the one who was among them who was not clean. Let's look at our passage today. We'll begin in verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he 
to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much once again for the opportunity to be in your presence and to hear from you. We recognize that these are the very words of God Almighty and not to my words. And so, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be here, that you would illuminate truth to us, that we might see clearly what you want us to learn today. Prepare our hearts for it, Lord. We want to be open to your leading and open to apply, Lord, what you want us to to learn from this today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus had just finished giving them an example of leadership, right? We talked about that last week. The foot washing was meant to, re- to reveal that humble servant leadership would be the kind of leadership Jesus would need to build his kingdom um, and it is a new mission work that he has. He is no longer, um, he no longer has a mission to the Jews. His new mission is to the world. That's the big transition from chapter 12 to chapter 13. He has given a last and final call to Israel to follow him. They have rejected him. And so chapter 13, he's focusing on his disciples to give them everything they need to take the gospel to the world. That's his new mission, even though he's going to leave them. So, Jesus' last words, last week we looked at, were in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. They could not call him Lord and not follow his example. Blessedness comes through obedience. That's the point. And so that's the reason for the statement that Jesus makes here in verse 18. Look at it again. I do not speak concerning all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Remember, there's one among them who is unclean. There would be no blessedness for one of his disciples because one of them will not follow his example in obedience, right? So one of them will not experience that blessedness. He's not speaking concerning all of them, he says. Yet, Jesus chose all of them. Notice that he says that. I know whom I have chosen. Interesting. Why does Jesus say these things? Well, Jesus is not caught off guard. He's not a victim of uh, Judas's betrayal. Many times in the stories and the movies that we watch, the, the person, the country, whatever, is completely unaware of the betrayer's actions, Right? or their desires. Is Jesus that person? No, indeed. He's known for a long time that there was a devil among them. He's not caught off guard. He knows who he has chosen. In fact, he goes a step further and gives us the reason for choosing who he chose, that the scripture may be fulfilled. Yeah. What scripture? What scripture is he quoting here? Well, he quotes Psalm 41, 9. You know me, anytime we see a quote like that, we're going to go look at it in context. So go to Psalm chapter 41. Psalm chapter 41. This is actually really quite interesting. I want you to see 
uh, who he's quoting and why. This is a this is a psalm of David. This is a psalm of David. And I'm going to look at verses 7 to 9. Psalm 41, verses 7 through 9. The actual quote comes from verse 9, but I'm backing up a bit so we get the context here. Look at what he says. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David writes that. Now, who could David possibly be speaking of? Well, I think possibly it's someone I've already mentioned before. I think probably his trusted counselor, Ahithophel, the man he would eat bread with, his close companion, his friend, the man whom he trusted, who betrayed him. And interestingly enough, after his betrayal, hung himself, just as Judas will do. In fact, David records another betrayal in Psalm 55. We won't look it up right now, but he gives us his feelings over that betrayal. I believe that's possibly Absalom's betrayal. And both of these Psalms point forward to the betrayal of Jesus by a close companion. That's why Jesus quotes it. But did you know that there are other passages that, that Judas's betrayal was, was prophesied about in very specific ways? Zechariah predicted Judas's betrayal. He gave us the specific amounts of money that he would be paid and even what he would do after the betrayal. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 to 13, I'll have for, for you here. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if it is not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. So this is what we see taking place here when you go through the Gospels. John doesn't record it, but Matthew does. And I think you should just, just take a look at it. It's Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I know I'm taking you a few places here, but it's good for you. Matthew chapter 26. He, he records these events so that we would see that it's, that it's a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, we get the, the price of the betrayal. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So there's a fulfillment of the silver. But what about the second part? We'll go ahead to chapter 27 of Matthew. Look at verse three. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. And therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. The 30 pieces of silver prophesied about. The rejection of the pieces of silver tossed into the temple, given to the potter, all took place. This was prophesied long before Judas was born. Interesting. So how are we to handle that? 
How do you deal with that? This is the same tension that we have seen in John all throughout. You have divine sovereignty on the one hand, and you have human responsibility, human choice on the other. Judas was not a programmed robot, right? He wasn't programmed to act this way. He wasn't following a script like an actor. He wasn't a puppet. He chose to follow Jesus. No one made him do that. And yet, he followed Christ only because Jesus chose him. In John chapter 15, we're not there yet, but just look at John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Judas's betrayal was predetermined, yet it never contradicted the truth that Judas acted under his own volition. And Jesus affirms this truth, in, um, as, and Luke records it in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two. Very amazing verse. I have it for you. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now look at what he says there. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. It goes as God's determined it to go. It goes according to God's plan. That's divine sovereignty. But look at the second half. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas's responsibility, his choice. Now the question is, why? Why is Jesus revealing that there's a traitor in their midst? I mean, if it's prophesied about that he was supposed to be betrayed, he's supposed to be betrayed, right? So why does Jesus just keep his mouth shut, let the whole thing happen? Well, he gives us the reason in the next verse, verse 19. Now I tell you, before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. He's telling them for their sake. The betrayal will happen. Jesus says these things to his disciples so that after they scatter in fear, when they're hiding, they will remember his omniscient foreknowledge. They will remember his deity and they will believe. Jesus said the same thing when he was speaking about the fact that he would be crucified, the fact that he would be lifted up. We saw this back in John chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Right? The same idea. When you see that happen, then you remember. Because why? Because I told you before it happened. So in their firm, unshakable belief in the deity of Jesus, the disciples will be able to continue in their mission to the world. See, if there was a traitor in their midst, you might, be, you might begin to think that, oh, the mission's compromised. Right? We won't have any, um, you know... No, no one will believe us, right? Jesus is reassuring them that it doesn't matter. In fact, verse 20, he reassures them further. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This should be a reassuring statement to them. Despite the fact that there's that traitor in their midst, the mission's not going to be jeopardized. They will still be sent by him, and people will still receive him. It's most assuredly to happen. We're very familiar with that phrase now, right? It's going to happen. Most assuredly is an authoritative statement, the double amen. It will happen. So the title that Jesus gives them, the apostles, refers to ones who are sent with the authority of the one who sent them, right? It's like the ambassadors of today. It's the same idea. So they'll be sent and possess authority, and people will still receive them. Receive is the word lambano. It's used four times in this verse here. It means to choose or to accept or claim for oneself. So 
in receiving the apostles' teaching, stay with me here, in receiving that teaching, they receive Jesus. That's what he's saying here. And in receiving Jesus, you receive who else? Him who sent me, God the Father, right? But they have to receive what first? They have to receive he whom I sent, right? What to Today, how do we receive the apostles? We receive what they've said about Jesus, right? We receive what they've written about him. We receive the words. There's a very um, famous section of scripture. Part of it was read this morning, Matthew 18. But there's a very famous verse in there, Matthew 18, 20. And we quote it all the time. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And we do it all the time out of context. The reason we do it is because it's true. It is true to say, because there's more than two or three gathered together, Jesus is in our midst. That is true. So I've, I've used it in that context as well. It is true. It's not what's meant by Matthew 18, 20, because it's in the context of correction. It's in the context of church discipline. When you must go and confront someone over sin in the church, right? And what it says there is that ultimately, right, you have the authority of the, the church has authority because you are confronting them with the truth of Scripture. In essence, in essence, if you've done everything Matthew 18 says, which you've gone and confronted, you've shown them in the word where that is sin, you've gone back with another brother, you've taken it to the church, there have been many people involved in this, two or three, confirming that what has been said in Scripture is true. I am there in their midst. In essence, heaven agrees right? Heaven agrees. The authority comes from the teaching. And Jesus is saying that very thing. You are going to go out to the world. uh, People are going to receive you. And in receiving you, they receive me. And in receiving me, they receive the Father. When people reject the truth of scripture, they're really rejecting the words of Christ. They're rejecting him. And in so doing, they're rejecting the Father. The same works that way. Now look at verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. He was troubled in spirit. Now, we looked at that uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 12, the same word that was used there. We talked about the fact that Jesus could be troubled, right? How could, be, how could Jesus be troubled? We looked at his humanity, right? That he is very much a man. He very much experienced soul trouble. And this is the same word there. In fact, rather than go all through that again, I'll just read you a quote by Andreas Kostenberger. He says this about this. In the present passage, Jesus' emotional state may best be captured as ragged, perturbed like the waters of a stormy sea, or agitated. His whole inner self convulsed at the thought of one of his closest followers betraying him to his enemies. He's troubled. He's washed the man's feet. Think about Jesus' love for Judas just for a minute. Just think about it. Think about three and a half years with a man you know is going to betray you. Think about everything Jesus taught him and still knowing his heart wasn't going to change. Judas was there when Jesus told the parable of the unjust steward. The unjust steward had a career of embezzlement. Judas was what? A thief. He was there when Jesus taught the parable of the wedding garment. A man was invited to attend the wedding of the king's son. He came, but he didn't put on the garment. He wasn't there to honor the king. He wasn't there to honor the son. The free food was great. It was a demonstration of those who were indifferent to the gospel, antagonistic to the gospel, unchanged by the gospel, and he did not enjoy the king's feast. He was there when Jesus preached against the love of money, 
against the dangers of pride and greed. Judas was there when Jesus said, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He kept silent. Judas was there when he said, the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man to have never been born. And Judas is here in the upper room when Jesus said, you are clean, but not all of you. Yet he remained quiet. He remained unmoved. He remained hardened and unrepentant. And so Jesus says in verse 21, he was troubled and he testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Not might. At that point, you will betray me. One of you will. He rejected all of that teaching. He rejected the miracles of Christ. One of you will betray me. And the announcement stuns the disciples. Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Perplexed is an interesting word. It's only used four times in the New Testament. It it means they were in doubt. In fact, probably one of the most famous verses you would be familiar with that uses the word. I don't have it for you, but it's 2 Corinthians 4.8. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. It means we're in doubt. We're not confused and not in despair. Christians are not confused, but we can be in doubt. I think that's the word here. They're in doubt. They've been with Judas for three and a half years. They, they know him. They trust him. He has the money box, for crying out loud. They're in doubt. I think John's point in using that word is he believes them to be truly in doubt. If you read the other Gospels, you have a little bit of a different take. Mark tells us that they were sorrowful, that they all took turns asking, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Matthew tells us that even Judas was one of those that went up and said, is it I, Lord? Luke tells us that they began to ask one another, well, it's not you, right? You wouldn't do this. Such a thing. You couldn't do this. I, I couldn't do this either. I, they're, they're talking about it. So there's a bunch of chatter going on in the room about what Jesus has just said. Now, imagine that. There's some commotion, right? That's a big statement. Everyone's talking. And Peter, being impatient, Peter stops the conversation with whoever. He sees somebody. And he's, he starts to initiate something. He wants to get to the bottom of this himself. Look at verses 23 to 25. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? So Peter is gesturing to somebody. Obviously, he's not sitting next to him, so he gets the attention of the disciple who was leaning on Jesus' bosom. Well, who's that? Well, we're given another clue. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, who's that? We should know by now, right? It's John. John does not mention himself by name in his own gospel. I think it's just an act of humility. Never. You won't find his name in here. We, we took a long introduction to this to show you that, that John is never mentioned. In fact, we have to like do all this study to figure out who wrote it. No, he um, mentions himself by the title, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It blew his mind that Jesus loved him. So it's John. It's John who leans back and he asks Jesus point blank, Lord, who is it? Now, I don't think anyone heard this. I think all the discussions going on, I think it's just Peter that got his attention, saying, hey, lay back, ask him, ask him, right? That's what's going on. Wouldn't you do that too? I'm like, I'm not getting, I'm not getting anywhere with this guy. You ask him. <laughs> so he does. He said, Lord, who, who is it? I don't think anyone really hears the answer, but John, Jesus answered verse 26, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now, I think evidently, He spoke softly enough that the significance of what he said is lost, except for on John. 
And I'll show you why in a minute. A piece of, of bread. Now, they've been up there in the upper room. They've already had their supper. So, I mean, this is just sort of, you know, you ever do the grazing, right? This is like, I'm going to have me a little more. It's unleavened bread, right? And they would take that and they would dip it in the mixture of bitter herbs and raisins and figs and dates and oil and water. They dip that in. Someone's getting hungry now. And um, they would eat it. But, but when the host would offer you a piece of that bread, it was a gesture of friendship. It's a friendship. The one who's going to betray me. Hmm. It's the one that I'm going to give, extend the hand of friendship to. That's the one. It's not lost on John, I don't think. I think John gets it. Piece of bread. There's an amazing quote I came across that just says it all by F.F. F. F. Bruce. He said this, Jesus' action in singling Judas out for a mark of special favor may have been intended as a final appeal to him to abandon his treacherous plan and play the part of a true disciple. Up to that moment, the die had not been irrevocably cast. If Judas wavered for a second, it was only to steel himself to carry out his fatal resolution to become the willing instrument of Satan, whereas he might have been the free follower and messenger of his master. Satan could not have entered into him had he not granted him admission. He'd been willing to say no to the adversary, then all of his master's intercessory power was available to him there and then to strengthen him. But when a disciple's will turns traitor, when the spiritual aid of Christ is refused, that person's condition is desperate indeed. Judas spurned Jesus' final gesture of love, of friendship. And the moment he did that, he was given over to Satan the timing is, is not a coincidence. Look at how John puts these things. Verse 26 again, right? It's he to whom I shall give the piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, after it, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. This is the second time that Satan gains control over Judas. The first time was just before Judas arranged the betrayal with the chief priests. Luke records it in chapter 22, verses 3 to 4. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. But now the line had been irrevocably crossed, just like F.F. Bruce put it. Judas is a willing tool in the hands of Satan at this point. Now, it might be worth reminding you at this point, if you're a believer today, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, this could never happen to you. I just, I just want to tell you that right off the bat. Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he asks the rhetorical questions, can, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness or Christ with Belial? The answer to those questions is obvious, that none. There is no relationship or fellowship with those two things. And then he also tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you cannot have Satan's spirit in you. You cannot have a demon in you. You can't serve two masters. You can't do it. But Judas was not serving Jesus. His heart was already turned away from him, is the point. He was not a believer. He was not a true follower. 
he had given in to Satan. So the fate of Judas is sealed, and that's why Jesus says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Do it quickly is an important thing because he's operating off of God's timeline. You're going to go do this, and you're going to do it now. Now, this part the disciples heard. For some reason, the conversation must have stopped down at this point because they heard that part. What you're going to do, do quickly, because the next two verses show us that they didn't understand what Jesus meant by it. Look at verses 28 and 29. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. They, they still think nothing um, but good about Judas. They assumed as the treasurer he was going to buy food for the Passover or give money to the poor, which would have been a traditional thing at the, the Passover. They don't see anything um, weird about this at all. And then verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. Now, remember I told you earlier that I think John sees what's going on here. I do because of how he writes this, or maybe it was revealed to him later when he was writing this by the Spirit. In any case, this is a very important order that he writes something. He says, having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately. Now, that stuck out to me. I would, I would, I would think that he would put, now Satan having entered Judas he went out immediately, right? Because that's what's happened. Satan's entered him, so he's on a mission for Satan. But that's not what John puts. John says, now after having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately. Why does, why does John put that? I think this is it. While Judas is under the power and influence of Satan, it's God who is still in control. Jesus offered the piece of bread. And now after he took that piece of bread that came from Jesus' hands, he's going to do what he's going to do. He's not ultimately just a victim of Satan. Ultimately, as we looked at earlier, this is ultimately part of God's plan. Jesus is controlling the details of his death so that it's in accord with God's timeline. He gave the piece of bread to Judas, and then Satan entered him. It was after the bread. So Jesus initiated his betrayal by activating the betrayer. In John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, Jesus said, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. If it was just in Judas's hand or power or in Satan's hand or power, then Jesus is a liar. But the power is in his own hands. John's final note here, and it was night, I think is more than a, a time stamp. I think it's more than just, oh, and by the way, um, you know, it's evening. This is an ominous ending. Judas is not only leaving Jesus during the nighttime. Jesus is leaving the light. Judas is leaving the light that Jesus is. There's too many J's. It's an allusion to what Jesus said back in 1235. Just turn back to that. Chapter 12, verse 35. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Judas is walking out into the darkness. He is leaving the light, and darkness has overtaken him. Why? Not because of Satan. 
We've already heard this in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The condemnation is not because Satan loved darkness rather than light, although he does. Men loved darkness rather than light. Judas left the light because he loved darkness. Judas left the light because his deeds were evil. This is a tragic story. And we see several lessons in it, and I'll close with these. First, as I mentioned before, this is the greatest example of lost opportunity ever. Ever. Judas walked with Jesus, sat under his teaching, witnessed his miracles firsthand, yet he rejected Jesus after all of that. He blew the greatest opportunity. Second, there's a very real danger of loving money, isn't there? People say, oh yeah, doesn't the Bible say that money is evil? And I say, no, it's not. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. He wanted money more than he wanted Christ. He wanted um, his kingdom there more than he wanted Christ. He wanted power and influence more than he wanted Christ. And when he found out Christ had a different plan, he didn't want Christ. A lot of times, the root of it is related to money in some way, but it also can be related to greed of any kind, pride, to have what you want and not what Christ wants. There's a very real danger in that. I think thirdly, Judas, as a betrayer of the faith, reminds us of the importance of self-examination to see if we're really of the faith. And that's a crazy thing to say, but I didn't say it. Scripture says it. Second Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Again, in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. That's Judas. Judas was not really one of them. He left them, and so he was never really, really one of them. Yet Jesus chose him. Amazing. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if we're really of the, of the faith, to, receive, to see if we really love the Lord. How do you do that? What do you test yourself? Is there a Q&A? Is there an app? Right? There ought to be, huh? They're like, test your faith. Look at that. You guys have all kinds of these, test these things and rate these things, right, on Facebook. I ignore all of those. Don't ever send them to me, right? But you all have all these things. But, but who, oft, who, who follows that? Test your faith. Examine yourselves. What would you look at? Would you look at how many good deeds you do? Would you look at church attendance? Whether you've been baptized, what would you, would you look at? How do you test your faith? Ultimately, Jesus would say, do you love me? And how, does, how, how do you love him? How do you know you love him? You obey him. Do you obey him? Do you do what he says? John gives a great test of faith, a great examination quiz you can do. I encourage you to do that on your own. Just read the, well, read the whole epistle first. Uh, John, you, 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 can, you can test yourself there. But do you love him enough to do what he says? Judas didn't. 
Fourthly, Judas demonstrates, I think, once again, that the sinful actions of man can never thwart the plans of God. Satan's supposed victory really was his ultimate defeat, wasn't it? In 1 John 3, 8, John says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Paul tells us he triumphed over them, right, by the cross. Jesus destroyed the works of Satan. In the end, Judas did not sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He sold himself for 30 pieces of silver. There's a poem that says essentially the same thing. Still as of old, men by themselves are priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. The example of Judas is one that's easy to look at and go, wow, how can such a man live like that? Interestingly enough, someone posted something this very week as I was finishing up the study of Judas based on that. The idea was this as the person was reflecting on the fact that Jesus would wash the feet of Judas. The person ultimately came to the conclusion, wait a minute, as I'm reading this, I'm Judas. A lot of times we look at that and go, oh, I can't believe that betrayer in the midst. Instead, we should have the heart and go, I hope I'm not a Judas. Lord, am I a Judas? Sometimes I am. Sometimes my heart, right, feels like a Judas. Sometimes I feel like so much in the flesh. You're like, what is going on? Which is why we're supposed to stop and come back to the Lord and go, Lord, strengthen me. Because it's the continuing in the faith, isn't it? It's the continuing in the faith to the very end that your faith is truly established. So my encouragement to you is, Examine yourselves, continue in the faith for his glory. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word today. Lord, we thank you for just being a loving and awesome God. The story of of Judas is a tragic story indeed. But Lord, I just pray that we would look at this with real humble hearts and not be too judgmental on Judas. Because we could so easily have hearts that are not really um, connected with you, not really aligned with your plans, but maybe our own, as Judas did. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look deep within to see if we truly love you, if we truly want to obey you and live for your glory according to your plans to build your kingdom and not mine. Because that was Judas's fatal flaw. Lord, I thank you for being a loving example, even in the end there, to offer one final token of friendship, one final chance for Judas to come and be clean while the rest were clean. I thank you for offering that to me, that I could be clean. Thank you for making me clean. You are a good God, and we love you. I pray you just bless the rest of our day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.